we should probably get started now. Um, well, welcome, everyone, to our workshop. Um, this is the Workshop on Globalization, Institutions, and Economic Security, which is sponsored by the Mershon Center for National Studies, our hosts here. And a special thanks to Ann Powers and to Cheryl King for um, setting up the organization here today. Um, we're delighted to welcome James Holston to Ohio State. He's the professor of anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley, and um, author of, most recently, Insurgent Citizenship, uh, Disjunctions of Democracy and Modernity in Brazil, and previously, The Modernist City, an Anthropological Critique of Brasilia. Um, Professor Holston's work, of course, is at the forefront of research on citizenship and insurgent democracy across, reaching across disciplines and the entanglement with entrenched systems of inequality, which is an important question for a lot of us studying democracy. Um, the talk today is called Right to the City, Right to Rights, and Insurgent Urban Citizenship. So please welcome with me Professor Holston. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me turn this on. Thank you very much, Sarah. And I want to thank Sarah Brooks and Alex Thompson um, and the Mershon Center, Mershon Center for inviting me today to talk to you about <clears throat> some of my work. Uh, it's really my pleasure to be here, and thank you for coming. Um, so I am going to talk about right to the city, right to rights, and urban citizenship. And um, let me begin by saying that the last half century has been a time of unprecedented global urbanization, democratization, and neoliberalization. In a matter of decades, countries that were mostly rural have become mostly urban. At the same time, the number of electoral democracies has doubled, increasing from one-third to two-thirds of the world's sovereign states. In many regions of the world, the growth of cities and the invention of democracy has also coincided with the institution of neoliberalism as an organization of state and a rationality of privatization, decentralization, and dispossession. These processes of urbanization, democratization, and neoliberalism, or neoliberalization, are deeply related. Although their combinations are intensely local in combustion, they produce a remarkably similar condition worldwide. Enormous numbers, soon approaching a majority of the world's population, now live in impoverished urban peripheries in conditions of illegal or irregular residence around urban centers that benefit from their services and their poverty. Yet these conditions also generate a characteristic response, and this is what I'm going to argue today, emphasize. Precisely in these urban peripheries, residents come to understand their basic needs in terms of their inhabiting the city, suffering it, building their daily lives in it, and making its landscape, history, and politics a place for themselves. The many meaning, meanings of this making often coalesce into a sense that they have a right to the city. This transformation of need into right has made cities a strategic arena for the development of new and insurgent citizenships. By citizenship, I mean membership in a political association or community that articulates a relation, not a dichotomy, but a relation between structures of power and daily lives, a relation typically expressed in terms of issues of security, liberty, justice, equality, difference, participation, formulated in the language of rights, privileges, and encumbrances. 
So that's all I mean by citizenship, membership in the political community. By insurgent urban citizenship, I refer to the political transformation that occurs when the conviction of having a right to the city turns residents into active citizens who mobilize their demands through residentially-based organizations that confront entrenched national regimes of citizen inequality. Not all urban peripheries produce this kind of insurgent this kind of insurgence of the city against the state. Not all kinds of urban peripheries produce this kind of insurgence of the city against the state. But enough do to qualify this collision of urban and national, local and imperial, insurgent and entrenched citizenships as a global category of conflict. The results of these processes in Latin America, Southern Africa, India, and elsewhere have been contradictory. If democratization would seem to hold special promise for more egalitarian citizenships and thus for greater citizen justice and dignity, in practice, most democracies experience tremendous conflict among citizens as principle collides with prejudice over the terms of national membership. Think of the immigration debates in this country, for example. And the distribution of rights. If cities have historically been the locus of citizenship's expansion, Contemporary peripheral urbanization creates especially volatile conditions as city regions become crowded with marginalized citizens and non-citizens who contest their exclusions. Thus, the insurgence of urban democratic citizenships in recent decades has disrupted established formulas of rule and privilege in the most diverse societies. Yet these very same developments show that democracy brings its own kind of destabilization, delegitimation, violence, and even de-democratization. I think we need to understand democracy. counters and its destabilizations, in which new kinds of urban citizens arise to expand democratic citizenships and new forms of urban violence, inequality, impunity, and dispossession erode them. Today, I want to emphasize that this insurgent right to the city confronts the entrenched with alternative formulations of citizenship. In other words, that its conflicts are clashes of citizenship and not merely idiosyncratic or instrumental protest and violence. I want to emphasize that although brutal political economies of land, labor, and law segregate the urban poor into peripheries and reduce them to a bare life of servility, the very same structures of inequality incite these hinterland residents to demand a life worthy of citizens. The incitement that I am talking about happens in the realm of everyday and domestic life, taking shape around the construction of residence in remote urban peripheries. It is an insurgent that begins with the struggle for a right to have a daily life in the city worthy of a citizen's dignity. Accordingly, its demands for a new formulation of citizenship get conceived in terms of housing, property, plumbing, daycare, security, and other aspects of residential life. Its leaders are the barely citizens of the entrenched regime, women, manual laborers, laborers, squatters, the functionally literate, immigrants, and above all, those families with a precarious stake 
in residential property with a legal or illegal toehold to a house lot somewhere far from elite centers. These are the agents who, in the process of building and defending their residential spaces, construct or not only construct a vast new city, but on that basis also propose a city with a different order of citizenship. In a recent article, David Harvey, the geographer, I'm sure you know, eloquently advances Henri Lefebvre's standard of the right to the city, a work he first published in in 1967. Harvey advances this standard by saying that, I quote, the freedom to make and remake our cities and ourselves is one of the most precious yet most neglected of our human rights. I want to make three points with regard to this precious right. First, in the four decades since Lefebvre published his incitement to change the world by realizing the right to urban life, vast numbers of new residents in impoverished urban peripheries are doing just that. Indeed, the right to the city is not neglected as Harvey suggests, but has been powerfully reinvented primarily but not only in cities of the global south. Second, the agents of this reinvention have framed it not in terms of revolution, divine intervention, or even human needs. They conceive it less than ever in terms of clientelism. Rather, they increasingly formulate it in terms of legal right and citizenship. This is perhaps surprising. While the right to the city may indeed be grounded in an ontology of human nature as a human right, as Harvey suggests, for many of the urban poor, it becomes a specific kind of demand of a different sort, a claim of citizens, a citizen right, a right articulated within the framework of citizenship and its legal, ethical, and performative registers. However, the initial and primary ground of the citizen right is the city and not the nation state. Thus, my third point is that in articulating the right to the city as a right of citizenship, the urban poor are also inventing an urban citizenship as distinct from the national. With this urban citizenship, moreover, the right to make and inhabit the city often leads to a more general conception of a right to rights the one being a pathway, so to speak, to the other. This articulation of rights is a compelling response to one of the most urgent political questions of our time. What is the most effective political community to organize the heterogeneity of peoples that most metropolitan regions have become? A heterogeneity in which many residents are not national citizens. This is a very basic question for the United States. One, however, that we have not very well uh, analyzed or even even discussed. Given the multinationality of contemporary cities, it, it cannot be membership in the nation state. Not national citizenship, in other words. It could be a planetary organization of human rights. It's a possibility. But that realization seems remote and in any sense, in my view, fraught with conceptual problems. 
Is it not rather the city itself organized as a residentially based, organized by a residentially based citizenship for which nation state membership and immigration status are irrelevant? This is the kind of urban citizenship that people in Cape Town and Sao Paulo are inventing in response to neoliberal dispossession and inequality. And also in San Francisco, as I hope I have time to discuss, with its pioneering initiative to provide preventative and curative health care to all its uninsured residents, regardless of their national belonging and immigration status. I don't know if you're aware of this program in San Francisco. I think it's unique in the country. Right? It's called Healthy San Francisco, and it makes health care available to all the uninsured, regardless of their national belonging and immigration status. In fact, regardless of your employment status as well. It's not an insurance program because as soon as you leave the city limits, you don't have it. It's a right, a rights program, a right to the city. (coughs) To make these points, um, let me... (coughs) Excuse me... (coughs) Let me offer a comment on how the global south has changed Lefebvre's conception of right to the city. Using Brazilian examples, I then briefly discuss the dominant formulation of citizenship in which alternative, the alternative to urban citizenship develops. Finally, I examine new forms of right to the city as a right and close, maybe if there's a little bit of time, with a discussion of some of their, of their limitations. <clears throat> That citizenship and its rights have become both the medium and the message of these struggles is a recent and still emerging transformation of urban conflict. And I don't want to give the sense that this is the global norm, but I think it's, 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 it's the norm in many places and it's an increasing one in those that it is not. It is especially an achievement of the poor in cities of the global south who have posed their struggles of urban life much more in terms of residence and basic everyday resources than in terms of the kinds of conflicts of labor and factory discipline that characterized working class movements in Europe during the last century. Or the last two, I guess. When, in Paris in the 1960s, Henri Lefebvre published his Right to the City, he imagined it emerging from the struggles inherent in the daily lives of poor residents. He predicted that the priorities of this struggle would shift from production to reproduction as the urban revolution, as he called it in another book, published after that, just after the right to city, overwhelmed the world. Although roundly criticized from within the Marxist tradition in which he wrote for emphasizing this shift, precisely this shift, it seems clear today that many aspects (coughs) of his prediction were correct. However, the conflicts that consolidated this urban revolution as a question of rights to the city occurred not primarily in Paris, but in cities of the metropolitan south, like Porto Alegre, Caracas, and Johannesburg. Moreover, in moving south, so to speak, the foundations of this right developed in ways that Lefebvre did not suppose. Lefebvre understood the right to the city as a claim by the working classes to a presence in the city that legitimated their appropriation to urban spaces, refusal to be excluded or evicted from them, and redefinition of their development value from market exchange to use. Lefebvre's understanding is grounded on the Marxist principle that the social needs of humanity trump the market needs of capital. 
Nevertheless, although he calls it a right, his right to the city remains unmoored to any framework or formulation that would, that would articulate it as such, that is, as a right. If it is a right, or if a right is a kind of social relation that distributes powers and liabilities between people, then, Lef- then in Lefebvre's conceptualization, it seems free-floating and devoid of any such relationality. Certainly it arises, as he supposes, in the conflicts of flesh and blood agents. However, reproducing the less traditional distrust of the egoistic rights of man, as Marx put it, right, of the legal system and citizenship, Lefebvre does not theorize his right to the city in terms of any articulation of social relatedness other than class conflict itself. So why call it a right? if it does not refer to a rule or a frame that generates subjective and objective power or does not articulate needs in terms of a specific set of claims, powers, and obligations sanctioned in law. Why call it a right? If we follow the development of struggles over over city life among the dispossessed of global, global urbanization since Lefebvre wrote, we discover that indeed an inserted notion of, the, of right to the city emerged among them in circumstances of degradation and peripheralness. However, the right to the city that was for Lefebvre, quote, like a cry and a demand in 1967, became more to a particular articulation that he did not imagine. Indeed, that Marxism has consistently criticized, if not rejected, that of citizenship, and specifically an urban citizenship, as I have suggested. Such insurgent citizenship movements have now been described in many regions of the global south. In most cases, they coalesce through organized movements of poor urban citizens confronting entrenched national regimes of citizen inequality. To date, they have emerged most fully, perhaps, in a number of Latin American countries and in South Africa, where the transformation of urban citizenship, transformations of urban citizenship unsettle national citizenship as well. However, we also find them documented in Thailand, India, China, Palestine, Holland, the United States, mostly San Francisco, and, uh, and elsewhere. I should note that within Marxism, the geographer Don Mitchell, whom some of you may know, is at Syracuse, uh, argued for the importance of embedding the right to the city in legislation and law in his study of public space and the homeless. But curiously, his rights talk remains itself unarticulated with citizenship as a regime of social relations that links state and society and gives rights their meanings, practices, and conflicts. I should also add that the agendas of these insurgent urban citizenships are by no means necessarily just or good or egalitarian. I think that's important to emphasize. They may be nativist, racist, communalist, middle class, and elitist, qualities that Lefebvre did not anticipate. Any of you working in India will know that the right to the city arguments have been now increasingly used by the middle classes to evict poor squatters. I guess squatters are by definition poor, but not not necessarily. Some of them in Rio are quite wealthy at the moment. They've been quite wealthy, but nevertheless to evict squatters. So what is this? The middle class using the right to the city? Nevertheless, and primarily, they have... Uh, made, uh, m- many uh, the, 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 uh, these urban citizenships have made many auto-constructed metropolises st- strategic arenas for the development 
of formulations of an urban citizenship based on struggles of residents in the urban peripheries for rights to reside with dignity, security, and mobility. The idea that global peripheral urbanization produces new kinds of active citizens and citizenships contrasts sharply with predictions of urban social and environmental catastrophe. These predictions have never been in short supply. Their 19th century versions presented urban problems as diseases of the social body and provided urban reformers justification for the housemanization, if I can put it that way, of cities throughout Europe and the Americas. These interpretations turned some urban populations into dangerous classes and targeted them for both scientific study and policing. Recently, a new round of books with alarming titles about city slums and billions of city dwellers feed an evidently large professional and popular appetite for apocalyptic descriptions of planetary degradation due to urbanization. I do not doubt that many people live and work in miserable conditions, suffering brutally from segregation and pollution. I myself have lived in and studied them for a long time. My point is rather that the terms of this catastrophe genre, especially the lead term slum, homogenize and stigmatize a global urban population. It it is not only that these terms immediately identify billions of people with horrific urban conditions, it is also that the stigma of slum leaves little space for their dignity and vitality. It squashes people into totalizing characterizations and in that reductive way reproduces an overdetermination of urban poverty that is difficulty recognizing emergent spaces of invention and agency. The problem I raise here is not only one of confronting homogenization with anthropological difference. After all, I'm an anthropologist. Right? And anthropology is always complicating. Right? And, and that, that's an important thing that anthropology does, confronting homogenization with anthropological difference, though that confrontation is itself crucial to undermine imperial regimes of knowledge and policy and to detect potentials for different futures. It is not, in other words, only an empirical question of demonstrating that the processes of urbanization are always multi-layered, entangled, and contradictory. Although such superimpositions create complex cityscapes, my argument is not only about inevitable anthropological complexity. It is also, and most importantly, about showing that sites of metropolitan innovation often often emerge at the very sites of metropolitan degradation. My argument is thus about developing concepts that can discern this kind of insurgence. To do so requires studying contemporary urban conditions through a combination of ethnography and history, generally antithetical to the urban catastrophe genre. The latter has difficulty recognizing slums as places in which residents use their ingenuity to create daily life to create daily a world of adaptations, connections, and strategies with which to inhabit modern metropolises on better terms than those imposed by the powerful local and international forces that would have them segregated and servile. To focus on this creativity is not to neglect the impositions of global forces of capitalism, excuse me, neoliberalism, IMF-style democratization, and the like. 
nor is it in any way to deny social factors such as class and race in studying urban life chances. Nor is it to wax romantic about the difficulties of putting new citizenships into practice. But it is to rub these forces, factors, and difficulties against the grain of local vitalities to show that they do not preclude them and that they are often, often reshaped by them. In resisting their their reductions, it emphasizes the capacity of slum dwellers to produce something new that cannot be readily assimilated into established conceptual frameworks. To emphasize the creativity of practice is also, I believe, to bring to the surface that very possibility among the many conditions that exist as potentials in the city. The city is this great palimpsest of potentials. And to focus on the creative practice is to bring to surface that very possibility. In that way, developing a paradigm of analysis of contemporary urbanization that reveals such insurgence is to produce critical research, critical social science that is not totalizing, reductive, or complacent. So I turn now to a discussion of rights as a basis for insurgent citizen movements. To grasp its significance, we need to understand the existing conditions of working class citizenship within which alternatives develop. This is a complex historical problem, and I only have time for the briefest outline. And and I'm I'm going to use Brazil, and specifically Sao Paulo as my case. And some of you know this case from having read the book or some of my work. I think it's worth summarizing here to give you a case. The working class development of Brazilian urban peripheries is grounded in a reiteration of centuries-old political economies of land, labor, and law. In land policies designed to anchor a certain kind of labor force in relation to specific regimes of production and in illegalities that initiate settlement and precipitate the legalization of property claims. The residential illegalities of today's peripheries repeat these old patterns, but they do so with an unexpected outcome that ultimately generates new formulations of citizenship. So it's great to study history, is that you can find one of those perverse twists that change the rules of the game. I mean, they're perverse to the entrenched, of course. To consolidate their rule of a new nation state at the beginning of the 19th century, Brazil's landed elites formulated a regime of citizenship using social differences that were not not the basis of national membership. Differences of education, property, race, gender, occupation, and religion. To distribute different treatment to different categories of citizens. They're all citizens, but they're differentiated by these personal categories. It thereby generated a a gradation of rights among them in which most rights are available only to particular kinds of citizens and exercises the privilege of particular social categories. I describe it, therefore, as a differentiated citizenship that uses these social qualifications to organize its political, civil, and social dimensions and to regulate its distributions of inequality. The the citizenship system thus created was universally inclusive in membership. This is the Brazilian solution, very different from the American, different from the French. Was universal in membership but massively inegalitarian in distribution. Everybody was a citizen. 
unlike in the U.S. at, at, at National Foundation. <clears throat> the citizenship system, sorry, I, I, I hasten to add that most citizenships systematically legitimate the distributions of inequalities. They are designed to do so. That's what citizenship does. In fact, all nations have deployed at one time or another this type of citizenship that manages social differences by legalizing them in ways that legitimate and reproduce inequality throughout the social system. Moreover, such regimes of legalized inequalities typically persist under every kind of rule, thriving under monarchy, dictatorship, and democracy. To maintain this differentiated citizenship in response to independence in 1822 and the abolition of slavery in 1888, Brazil's ruling elites developed a twofold solution. To control political citizenship, they made suffrage direct and voluntary, but restricted it to the literate in 1881. This reduction immediately reduced the electorate to a fraction of the population, less than 1%. Brazil had been actually fairly generous in its electorate, allowing illiterates to vote um, throughout the 19th century. That one change reduced the electorate to less than 1%. Moreover, the Republic's founding constitution in 1891 eliminated the right of citizens to a primary education that would have given them the rudiments of literacy and that had been enshrined, though not much realized, in the Independence Charter of 1824. So they make literacy the ground for citizenship and they remove the right to public education. Enacted with a stroke of a pen, the literacy restriction denied most Brazilians their political citizenship for an entire century until it was repealed in 1985. To dominate civil and economic matters, elites created a real estate market to legitimate the ownership of private property and finance the immigration of free labor. <clears throat> Adapting the English theorist of colonization, E.G. Wakefield. Anybody remember E.G. Wakefield from Marx? The last chapter of Capital, the first volume of Capital, is Marx at his most brilliant, where he shreds Wakefield. He, it's just beautiful. Although claiming that Wakefield discovered in the colonies, Australia, the nature of, of social relations of production at home. But it's just one, it's Marx at his best writing. Uh, why it's at the last chapter is an interesting question. In any case, Wakefield was the considered the great theorist of, 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 of colonialism in mid-century. So adapting the English theorist, theorist Wakefield, they kept land prices high and wages low to deny the working classes legal access to land and independent production and to force them, as a result, to remain a source of semi-servile cheap labor. Yeah, I mean, I have to just, as an aside, say that the Brazilians... Um, studied beginning in 1830, you know, when ab abolition was clearly visible on the horizon, um, they studied the alternatives. You know, what would happen with these masses of, of, of people born in Brazil who would be freed and by the rules of Brazilian citizenship, citizens? And they looked at the United States. And they said, that's not where we want to go. That is to say, not thinking of slavery, but thinking of access to land, the creation of a yeoman democracy, that citizens, because of course in the United States, even freed blacks weren't citizens, so, but they looked at land policy in the United States. And I remember reading, 
I haven't been to Ohio much, but I remember reading um, one of the Brazilian senators, those days when senators were really illiterate, even smart, um, um, reading in 1862, uh, I guess, uh, a treatise that he wrote about uh, the price of land in Ohio and, and, and the importance of the price of land in Ohio for American democracy. And 1862 was on the, the, the eve of the Homestead Act, in which then land was going to be given away. But, but the Brazilians were very aware of all that was going on about land in the United States. And they adapted Wakefield to do just the opposite, to not go there, to keep the price of land high and wages low, to create a tethered and servile population. Thus, um, political and citizenship sorry, political and civil citizenship developed in step. Both became more restrictive as Brazil changed from an imperial nation based on slave labor to a republican nation based on wage labor over the course of the 19th century. Subsequent regimes in the 20th century perpetuated this paradigm of an inclusively inegalitarian citizenship by giving it modern urban industrial form, incorporating new urban workers into a public sphere of labor laws without equality and autonomy. I'm thinking, of course, of Vargas here. As a result of the persistence of this paradigm of differentiated citizenship, most Brazilians by mid-20th century had been denied political rights, excluded from property ownership, estranged from law, incorporated into the labor market as servile workers, and forced into segregated and often illegal conditions of residence in hinterlands that lacked infrastructure. However, the new densities of urban life in these peripheries facilitated a paradoxical possibility, that of developing a sphere of independence precisely in the interior and, from the perspective of central authority, remote spaces of neighborhoods in the peripheries. There, organized around the social life and necessities of residence, beyond immediate state party and employer sanction, the new space of civic participation rights, or a new space of civic participation rights and collective imagination emerged. The paradigm of differentiated citizenship remains contemporary. All right, I want to make no... I want to have no illusions about that. It remains contemporary, having survived, even nourished, every political regime in Brazil over the last 200 years, including electoral democracy. It perdures through its enabling conditions, exclusion from property, denial of political rights, residential illegality, what I call the misrule of law, servility. However, these conditions changed after the 1940s as the majority of Brazilians moved to cities and built the peripheries. It was a very short period of time, 30 years or so. The ratio between urban and rural inverted from 70, 30, right, 70 rural, 30 urban, no, 70 rural, 30 urban to, 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 to the, uh, the uh, inverse. <clears throat> In the auto-constructed city, and I use auto-constructed from the Brazilian auto-construção, meaning self-built, the auto-constructed city, because what do, I mean, poor people have to build their own homes, right? In the auto-constructed city, these very same historical sites of differentiation that I just enumerated fueled the eruption of an insurgent citizenship that destabilized the differentiated as the urban poor gained political rights by becoming functionally literate. There's a direct correlation between literacy and urbanization. 
Um, functionally literate, they established claims to property through house building, established rights to urban infrastructure, made law an asset through their struggles with eviction, became modern consumers, their relationship to the market is important, and achieved personal competence through their experience of the city. These achievements validated their standing as city builders. Moreover, they produced an unprecedented involvement in law that made their leaders confident to confront the state in its own idiom of legal reasoning. Instead of domesticating the dangerous classes, the material and legal difficulties of auto construction politicized them, becoming core issues of grassroots organization and movements. In ways that contradict Partha Chatterjee's <coughs> argument in um, The Politics of the Government, of the governed, the politics of the governed, <coughs> in ways that contradict Chatterjee's arguments about politics among the urban poor in most of the world, as he, with tremendous hubris, puts it, they formed into voluntary associations to defend their residences and demand the regularization of their property and, deliver, and delivery of urban services as citizens who have rights to their production of the city as citizens who have rights to their production in the city. Most of these organizations develop with considerable autonomy from the established domains of citizenship officially available to the working classes. In effect, the very conditions of remoteness in the peripheries enabled an off-work and out-of-sight freedom to invent new modes of association. An interesting paradox of peripheralness itself. In the neighborhoods in which I work in Sao Paulo, for example, residents have waged campaigns for potable piped water, sewage lines, straight street paving, public lighting, bus service, trash collection, a preschool, and a health clinic. Remarkably, they achieved all of these objectives. The sole exception being definitive title to their house laws. We could talk about that later. The sum of these experiences generated a new urban citizenship among residents in the poor peripheries based on three core processes. The first generated new kinds of participation in an alternative public sphere. One based on, on residents' own grassroots organizations through which they articulated their needs in terms of rights and in so doing constituted an agenda of citizenship. The second gave them a new understanding of the basis of these rights and of their dignity as bearers of rights. The third transformed the relationship between state and citizen, generating new legal frameworks, participatory institutions, and policymaking practices. I consider that these processes constitute an urban citizenship when they develop under four conditions that all refer to the city. When urban residence is the basis of mobilization, when the agenda of mobilization is about rights to the city, when the city is the primary political community of comparison for these developments, in other words, not the nation, when residents legitimate this agenda of rights and participatory practice on the basis of their contributions to the city itself. In mobilizing right to the city campaigns, women emerge as some of the most effective leaders of the organized residents, thus achieving a doubly new and unsettling voice. They developed new strategies of protest and politicized motherhood as a means of making demands. Moreover, their engagements in the city yielded an unprecedented knowledge of bureaucracy and law. With some men, 
they became researchers. I don't want to leave the men out, but of course men are falling behind, right? Uh, but, but with some men, um, they became researchers investigating the requirements for each infrastructure they, de- for each infrastructure they demanded. Conducting extensive archival investigations at municipal departments, courts, registries into land titles, subdivision plans, and surveyors' records, and so forth, in an effort to unravel the tangled, unbelievably tangled history of titles in the area of where they lived and substantiate their, their own claims as often good faith buyers who had been swindled. Right? So, in, a, in effect, you know, it's the it's a paper state, a state that thrives on the production of paper and stamps and seals and ribbons, you know, that gets subverted by its own addictions to paper. So, it's kind of... In the process, they gain both a legal education and an idiom for engaging the state and its elites. One of the most active researchers and leaders in L'Art Nationale, one of the neighborhoods in which I work, told me how she learned about the courts. And I quote from her. To tell the truth, I couldn't even tell one court from another. I didn't know what their names meant or anything about them. I was a housewife with a baby. I had only, th- I had only finished elementary school. I didn't know anything. But I kept learning things after I joined the Neighborhood Association. In becoming knowledgeable and pressing their demands, residents confronted the state with its negligence as provider for the well-being or of the well-being of citizens. In this confrontation, a much more autonomous sphere of self-interested and competent citizens emerged. It challenged a fundamental conception of Brazilian society inherent in the modernizing state that has dominated Brazil, namely that Brazil's masses are ignorant citizens who are incapable of making competent decisions on their own and who therefore need to be led into modernity by an enlightened elite. In the insurgent formulation, by contrast, the residents of the peripheries imagine that their interests derive from their own experience, not from state plans, and that they themselves are informed and competent to make decisions. Yet, it's worth emphasizing, in contrast to Lefebvre's formulation of the right to the city, they struggled to exercise their competence within state, market, and social institutions. This inclusion resulted in a transformation of these institutions, not a revolution in the way we sort of cheaply understand the word, but certainly in a social transformation of capitalism, the kind of savage capitalism practiced in Brazil. Now, for example, the neighborhood associations also forged new horizontal confederations of citizens concerned with housing, land conflict, infrastructure, human rights, and urban administration that became citywide and even national movements. The most significant was their massive participation in framing the 1988 Constitution at the end of the military rule. This movement turned insurgent citizens of the urban peripheries into key protagonists in a national struggle over the democratic imagination of a new charter for Brazilian society. They fought not only to make the Constitution formally democratic, they insisted on participating directly in its elaboration. Their objective was to ensure that it embody their experiences, those of modern urban working classes with a hard-won right to their cities as a basic source of substantive rights and social justice principles. Now, this had tremendous consequences for urban policy and citizenship um, that got figured into the Constitution through the process of popular amendments 
and the generation of millions, 12 million signatures on 122 popular amendments, and um, resulted in the Constitution mandating citizen participation on the one hand and transforming the very conception of a natural right conceptualization, the very formulation of a natural right conceptualization of property. Um, as some of you may know about the social function of property and adverse, urban adverse possession. Um, very radical uh, moves indeed that the new constitution made. And I can discuss the social function of property and urban adverse possession li- later if, if you'd like. But uh, both representing a, 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 a fundamental challenge to the liberal foundations of citizenship and property and natural rights. This participatory citizenship so strongly marked the development of a democratic imagination among residents in the peripheries that almost 10 years after the Constitutional Assembly, which in Portuguese is Assembleia Constituinci, I noticed a striking lexical phenomenon in my interviews. One woman in La Nacional told me, it's beautiful to read. Look, I have this right. If you take, and she held up a little pocket version of the Constitution that people carry sometimes to meetings. She said, if you take the Constituinci to read, I've read various parts, you look at it and you say, wow, can this be a fairy tale? Is this true? But if I don't use it, I won't know if what is written really works. So I first thought that this use of Constituinci, right, she says, if you take the Constituinci to read, was an idiosyncratic error in syntax. But after transcribing many interviews, I realized that this switching of terms is consistent. When residents talk about the Constitution, the Constituição, they frequently use the word constituinci instead. That is, they often refer to the text of the National Charter by the agency, their urban insurgent agency in making it. So let me now emphasize the change in conception of rights that is fundamental to this agency. I want to talk a little bit about rights because I find in general that in the literature, people don't, researchers, social scientists don't all that much talk about what a democratic rule of law means. Not just a rule of law, which is sort of an empty sibboleth, right? but a democratic rule of law. And they also don't talk about the transformation of rights and concepts of rights that occur in periods of important social change. Not just regime change, but important change, social change. So I ask people, why do you think you have rights? Actually, I ask my American students, why do you think you have rights? Why do you think you have rights? It's really interesting to ask people why they think they have rights. And you'd be surprised. It's not so clear. It's not so well understood. So I ask people, why do you think you have rights? I asked a pioneering resident, uh, for example, in one neighborhood, Sao Paulo. He was, the quote I'm going to read is, he's a retired textile worker and a former neighbor association president. He says, well, one part is just what we were saying. I am an honest person. Thank God. I don't steal from anybody. I am a worker. I fulfill my obligations at home with my family. I pay my taxes. But today, I think the following. I have rights because the Constituinci, the Constitution, gives me these rights. But I have to run after my rights. I have to look for them. Because if I don't, they won't fall from the sky. Only rain falls from the sky. You can live here 50 years. You can have your things. But if you don't run after your rights, how are you going to make them happen? I wish more Americans really believed that. The public spheres of citizenship that emerged in Brazilian peripheries forced the state to respond to their new urban conditions by recognizing new kinds and sources of citizen rights. 
These rights concern issues of both substance and scope that the state's existing laws institutions had generally neglected. In that sense, they developed on the margins of the established assumptions of governance. They addressed the new spaces of daily life of the poor in the urban peripheries. They concerned women and children as well as men. They established duties to provide state services. Without doubt, the greatest innovation of these rights is that they initiate a reconceptualization. Their advocates begin to conceive of them as entitlements of general citizenship based on first producing the city and from that the nation rather than of specifically differentiated categories of citizens such as registered worker. In these ways, the emergence of new participatory publics in the peripheries not only expanded substantive citizenship to new social bases, it also created new understandings and practices of rights. Yet as the above statement suggests, that, that I, I cited from the textile worker, this formulation of rights remains a mix of new and old, this foundation of rights, sorry, remains a mix of, of old and new formulations. As one of the failures of research on urban slums has been to neglect changing conceptions of right, I want to emphasize this importance. When I ask residents in neighborhoods why they think they have rights and on what basis, they consistently evoke an amalgam of three conceptions. As the textile worker stated, they speak about rights as privileges of specific moral and social categories. I'm an honest worker. So it's a privilege of a specific moral and social category as deriving from their stakes in the city. That's another way, right? I pay my taxes. I built my home. I help build this neighborhood. And thirdly, as written in the Constitution. The Constitution gives me rights. In other words, they present a hybrid of what I would call special, of what I call special treatment rights for certain moral and personal categories, contributor rights, and text-based rights. This typology has a temporal organization following the strategies residents deploy in their housing and land conflicts. In these three formulations, people use the same concept to describe the realization of rights. You may have picked up that phrase. They speak of looking for your rights or running after your rights. However, they do so generally, however, doing so generally means something different in each case with a different outcome. The conceptualization of rights as the privilege of and special treatment for certain kinds of citizens has grounded in various incarnations the entrenched system of differentiated citizenship for centuries. As long as it prevails, citizenship remains overwhelmingly a means for distributing and legitimating inequality throughout the social system. But it does remain. People do say, I don't think I'll have time to talk about this, but they all agree. Women should retire five years. Women have the right to retire five years earlier than men. Why? Because they work more. Any man knows that. Right? When the man comes home at night, what does he do? He kicks off his shoes, goes to the bar, watches TV, has a beer, whereas the woman has homework to do, housework to do. So rather than addressing that, those inequalities of gender and work, the Brazilians adopt a compensatory formula of, of, of five years and in effect, in my view, simply spread inequality 
throughout the social system in legal ways. So that's just an example of how differentiation is alive and well and persists. Um, then we can ask, should blacks get preferential, some kind of preferential treatment through affirmative action to universities? A big question in Brazil. Of course, who's black? But who has rights to health care? All these questions are very, very salient in Brazil. Should people with degrees in higher education get a special jail cell? They're all about privilege for certain kinds of categories. So in such a system, what does affirmative action on the basis of race mean? I think with this, you can only answer that question if you have this historical understanding of the Brazilian system of citizenship. And it goes for the American too, which is a different system, a different history. Um, the new urban citizenships confront this core formulation of privilege with two concept new conceptualizations of rights. The first refers to what I call contributor or stakeholder rights in the city because citizens advance them as legitimate claims on the basis of their contributions to the city itself, to its construction through their building of homes and neighborhoods, to city government through their payments of taxes, and to the city's economy through their consumption. They are stakeholder rights because residents ground their legitimacy in the appropriation of the city through these means. Contributor stakeholder rights are therefore based on three right to the city identities unprecedented for most of the urban poor. Property owner, whatever property may mean because it's changed, but property owner, taxpayer, and mass consumer. These identities engage an agency of self-determination entirely different from that embodied in, in rights as privilege. Yet, yet, as not all Brazilians share these statuses, right? Some are renters, for example. Um, they also ambiguously perpetuate some elements of special treatment Citizenship. However, as the rate of home ownership in Sao Paulo's peripheries is remarkably high, varying between 70 and 90 percent, the identity of home owner is predominant. Moreover, squatters often own their homes, many of which are well-equipped, and most residents pay a variety of service fees and taxes as residential consumers. Thus, although the identity of stakeholder is without doubt strongest among those who claim to own their house lot in the peripheries, residents very generally view home ownership, tax paying, and consumption as evidence of their stakes in the city. For many, a first substantive understanding of their agency in the city. In the stakeholder conception of rights, muni citizens, which is a phrase I sometimes hear, merit respect not because they are good, honest workers or family providers. They do not have to prove personal moral attributes individually to an official or have them acknowledged by the state to find their rights. Right? You don't have to demonstrate your virtuousness to get a student loan, do you? Rather, urban citizens find their rights by demanding them without relying on the quid pro quo of deference and favor. Quote, if he pays taxes, he is a citizen and he must be respected wherever he goes and is an assertion I routinely hear. We may have an ideological distrust of tax contribution as evidence of citizenship, perhaps, I don't know, maybe you do, but we should see the consequences when people do not contribute to the state. When people don't pay taxes, educational disaster in California, when citizens don't serve in the military but rely on mercenaries, longest wars in the history of the United States, Iraq and Afghanistan. <clears throat> Contributor rights thus promote a citizenship based on an agency 
of auto construction. Ironically, as city builders, taxpayers, and consumers, these urban citizens, citizens have inverted the real stakes arguments that 19th and 20th century liberals used to exclude the working classes from citizenship, if you know that history of liberalism. On occasion, I've seen people at neighborhood meetings, as I mentioned, pull a concise edition of the Constitution, of the 88 Citizen Constitution, from their back pockets to make a point. More frequently, I hear them to refer to more frequently, I hear them refer to what it says in the Constitution. This reference to the Constitution and the legal codes deriving from it secures the second new understanding of rights to emerge in the peripheries. It is based on textual knowledge. To residents, text-based rights are evident, clear, accessible, and above all precise, and above, and above all knowable, precisely because they are written down for all to see. The right to the city now has a very different basis. People access these rights in three ways. They read them in the paperback editions of the Constitution. Some consult them online. Many people have access to computers now, in one way or another. And the state has made them available online. Um, they also, Many people also utilize new government institutions associated with innovations in the Constitution, which resulted from the neighborhood movements that aimed to increase access to and information about rights as a matter of policy. Hence, residents frequent small claims, courts, consumer rights offices, and various departments of public administration that are more numerous in the periphery. As one resident put it, these institutions constitute, and I quote, a source for you to go and to get a return for your effort. In no small, it is no small historical irony that this confidence in text-based rights has turned the popular classes of Sao Paulo into enthusiastic positivists. Not so distant from the positivism that some, Brazil, some of Brazil's 19th century nation builders venerated, and certainly that the 19th century liberals used to keep the illiterates out. The keystone of this new foundation of rights is access to knowledge. If in the past it was almost impossible for a poor person to know her rights without the intercession of a superior, today access to this information is practically self-evident. It is common in the, in the contemporary peripheries to hear people talk about law in terms of researching its texts. If they have a problem, they search for the legal text that establishes their rights. Now, I'm not talking about realization here. It's another story. The access to text-based law and the sense of empowerment it brings have thus fundamentally changed the meaning of looking for your rights for working-class citizens. Today, they not only emphasize, they not only emphatically say that a person has the right to look for his rights, echoing precisely Hannah Arendt's notion of justice. The important point, they overwhelmingly agree, is that, and I quote, if you look today, you will find them because they are accessible, tangible, look and point at written text. These battle-seasoned residents know that knowing rights does not ensure getting justice, but as the director of one of the neighborhood associations observed, quote, without knowing the law, one cannot know justice. <clears throat> Let me just finish up by saying a crucial change occurred in the urban social movements and organizations. When residents began to generate rights-based arguments to justify their demands, when they began to see their, that their needs would be best served by understanding them as rights. Right? And this went against the, the, let's say, the Catholic Church Sabbies and the left in general and the early 
up, up, up through the mid-80s, a variety of interesting reasons. Rights-based arguments appealed to residents of the peripheries not only because they provided a strategy with which to fight the massive inequalities and disabilities of city life they suffered. Discourses of armed revolution do that too. They also appealed because they offered a strategy of countering, not furthering, illegality and marginalization through the demonstration of competence. Know your rights. And a new power to use the law rather than be its victim. That is, as a means to negate its traditional humiliation of the poor through the dignity and power of participating in the public sphere as bearers of rights. Are these right claims effective? Often not. That's why they, in their encounters with entrenched um, um, inequalities, uh, produce a very dangerous contemporary moment in Brazilian society. The rights arguments of the urban social movements transcended a specific reference to law to signify a change of subjectivity. That is, their articulation is like a performative that changes the status of performers. In this case, the subjects historically denied rights, whom the state and its elite did not recognize as national citizens who intrinsically bear rights. To citizens who, regardless of other attributes, do so, In other words, the rights arguments constituted their proponents as bearers of the right to rights and as worthy of that distinction as any other class of citizen. In this performance, they produced a transformation in the understanding of Brazilian citizenship itself of great social consequence, from a distribution of privilege to particular categories of citizens to a distribution of of the right to rights for all citizens. The right to the city argument was the means to struggle for this recognition of being citizens who bear the right to rights. This change in citizen subjectivity was neither linear nor without contradiction. It continues to be entangled with justifications of need, clientelistic relations, and special treatment rationalities. Limitations, and I see I don't really have time to discuss that perhaps... In the, in, the, in the question question period, we can. But I stress that older conceptions of differentiated citizenship are still vital. Yet, the equality of inclusion the new conceptions demand is insurgent, even though it also elbows into the existing system. It is insurgent because the right to rights that citizens claim is not minimal. It already assumes the totality of possible rights. Hence, the recognition of these citizens as right-to-rights-bearing members creates a radical opportunity to remake Brazilian citizenship for a democratic society. Especially in the Global South, the politicization that emerged through processes of peripheral urbanization and urban citizenship I have discussed is quite different from the kind of politics post-colonial nationalism structure. Peripheral urbanization established a space of opposition, the peripheries, within city regions. This space confronts the state and its culture of citizenship with a new imagination of democratic values. Its insurgent citizenship opposes the modernist and developmentalist political projects of absorbing citizenship into a plan of nation-building monopolized by the state. The state projects homogenize the multitude of social, or such state projects homogenize the multitude of social and cultural identities of modern society to produce formerly commensurable national subjects, most of whom have little substantive citizenship 
for citizens and none for the many city residents who are not nationals. Urban citizenship does the opposite. It typically has no formal standing in the sense that it is not recognized in constitutions. Rather, it is a de facto regime of new identities and claim-making. Having little if no formal status, urban citizenship is all substance. Rather than homogenize and dematerialize difference to arrive at formal national identity, urban citizenship takes as its substance the heterogeneity and materiality of urban practice. Yet in many places, mostly in the global south and increasingly in Europe, urban citizenship is being recognized and institutionalized. In French and Dutch cities that give all residents, regardless of immigration status, the right to vote locally, in San Francisco, as I mentioned, in the pioneering initiative enacted by the Board of Supervisors to give all its uninsured residents health care, urban citizenship is being recognized as the most effective political means to achieve social justice in the city. Thank you. So I realize I apologize for going on so long, but um, I think we have time for questions and discussions. Are there any comments? Yeah, Marcus. Um, so at one point in the talk, you contrasted urban citizenship with national citizenship, which of course shocked me greatly as urban as opposed to rural. And as I'm thinking about uh, urban citizenship and a lot of the claims you make about it, I'm wondering if it doesn't have precursors in rural citizenship. Uh, to go back further, if you're talking about rights-based claims to things uh, rights-based claims to land emerge in the countryside before the cities rights And that engagement with law also probably predates some of the urban struggles. And the law itself was written about rural property. So I'm wondering, is there anything about insurgent citizenship that is properly urban necessarily? Well, I would say that in the case of Brazil, <coughs> the, um, the claims for uh, urban property, um, uh, the claims for property um, among, among, among the poor don't emerge in the countryside. These are urban-based movements. There, there were, of course, some peasant leagues, um, but they were not constituted with, on the basis of law and, and rights to production. Um, the experience of the rural poor was one of settlement and eviction, cycles of settlement and eviction and violence. Um, access to the law, uh, I mean, the, the narrative about a property and law, rural property and law, is a very American one. There's no doubt about that. Um, then the other example uh, was about, um, um, you know, urban rural citizenship versus urban. But, well, rural citizenship is a very peculiar uh, category. I mean, if you think about um, if, if you think about the um, the development of citizenship itself, it, it is it is in the in, in the classic tradition anchored in the polis in the city. And the polis is, you know, the demos emerges as the incorporation of the countryside into the sphere of authority represented by the Acropolis, right? And it's, it's precisely the incorporation of the countryside into city life. Um, and when, when we look at it as, it as its medieval origins, you know, the, the origin of, 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 of citizenship is focused as an emerging institution in the city and the city-state. So you look at, you know, Weber's great example of city air makes free. You know, he, he uses this example of city air makes free. The city emerges as, the, as an island of freedom, 
within a sea of seniorial and ecclesiastical authority. And it's the citizenship, specifically city and ship, that is the counter to seniorial and ecclesiastical authority and, and produces a new, essentially residentially based identity, right? Not a womb to tomb status organization, but rather a residentially based. If you can make it to the city you, and establish yourself, you can be free with this new identity called citizenship. So, I mean, I see then that the project of the nation state emerges through destroying the primacy of urban citizenship. Because what, what competes, there are several things that compete for national identity. You know, there's the feudal system, there's sort of the church, and the Holy Roman Empire, but there's also the city-states and its urban citizenship. And the nation-state is very successful in destroying that um, in the early modern period, uh, from which it has really never arisen. You know, there are a few examples, Singapore, no doubt, but it has never re- really arisen again, I think, until the present period. When what we see is the in- ineffectiveness of national citizenship, to handle the most urban que- urban, uh, important questions of our, of our time and, and a number of alternatives. We could also talk about regional citizenship, the Spanish examples, for example, right? Um, um, but, 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 but that's also another form of a kind of local citizenship as well. So I, I, I see that, that um, the sort of, of insurgent citizenship movement I'm talking about is very much a product of the, the great historical legacies of the city as the place, as the most salient place of the development of citizenship, which frankly I don't see in the countryside. I see the countryside is dominated by uh, um, landowning elites and other, other kinds of, 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 of allegiances. So, so there are no citizenship rights that come out of membership in a closed corporate community or something like that? Well, of course. One definition of citizenship is membership in any, close, in any, any, any corporate community. And so the answer is, of course, yes. But what is the quality? It's certainly not – I'm talking about the quality of that membership, right, um, first of all. Second um, – the urban, the, the rural poor participated in some uh, closed corporate memberships, the parish, for example, uh, and they certainly had rights. And you could talk about good citizens of the parish, but it wasn't an insurgent. Alan? anything about how to bring social justice, break the culture of poverty. Uh, You know, you talk about social justice in the city. um, Also, you you emphasize dignity. And when you think about proving so hard with the culture of poverty, we're pretty clear throwing money at it isn't going to work. It's pretty clear that there's got to be some sort of participatory dignity, respect-related change going on, and I'm just wondering if you're finding ways of, of relating what's going on in, in, in this to what we're suffering here. In, uh, I don't know. I'm sure some of you know, you know much more about the U.S. than I do. I do work, I, I have worked in California, and I did a project in Oceanside, California, and with 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 uh, immigrants, mostly undocumented. I mean, so I have some, some sense of, of, 
of that. Um, well, I, I, you know, the U.S. Is a, is a very difficult case. The U.S., comparatively speaking, is, you know, I think going through a real deep de-democratization at many levels. Um, and how to get it to respond, you know, how to get people to respond is, I've been shocked with the economic, the educational crisis in California. I mean, you know, Berkeley has 35,000 students. And the demonstrations <coughs> in favor of, of education has been, have been minimally attended. So, I don't know. The stakes are really pretty high. Um, the university is, only receives 30% from the state at this moment. Um, it's been declining in the last two decades because of state revenues um, and the allocation to prisons and other things. Um, and the answer is, you know, it's the Michigan model of privatization where Californians who don't want to become excruciatingly indebted will simply not go to the University of California and their places will be taken by others. That doesn't seem to get people up in, up in arms, so to speak. And so it's hard to understand. Are we all working so much that we can't think? I don't really have... I mean, but I, I did mention, you know, things that is really disturbing, like mercenary army, rule tyranny of the minority, I mean, things that are, are very difficult to change. Well, but having said that, there are places... I mean, San Francisco did enact this um, rather remarkable uh, health care initiative, which is not an insurance scheme, but a right-to-the-city scheme. And, you know, the, some of the restaurant association protested and said people won't want to go to restaurants because the, the, the scheme was to each each customer pays an additional 3% to because the employers pass it off. None of that happened. None of that happened. And, and so that's one. We know that the right-to-the-city movement in the United States, there's a... Um, is alive and well. Um, there's a very good website that, that you can get lots of information on right to the city issues. Um, you know, there are squ sort of squ urban squatter issues uh, around. Um, what do you think? Well, I mean, you're a student of this. I, well, I'm not a student of it, but I mean, I, I am struck. Um, I, I, I am struck by the uh, Michigan Institute of Public Health Well, my, I mean, that's what that's what I think. So, 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 so obviously that that is what I think. And my next uh, big project, I have another one. This is a smaller one, but my next big project is really to write on the, the question of urban citizenship in the United States. I do think that this really is an extraordinary opportunity for the United States. The United States is a very it, the U.S. Constitution is peculiar in that 
<coughs> was it the second article? Is that right? Uh, Ascribes to the states the power to determine suffrage qualifications. It's really unusual. And because it does that, that means that local, locals, of course, that's what the South did to exclude African Americans forever. And I'm not saying that small is necessarily always beautiful, and that there are not lots of problems with local initiatives, which people use lo- locally, people use democracy to segregate and all that. We know all that. Absolutely. But I do think that there are some very interesting possibilities. Um, at the, now if you don't want to call it ur- urban, because you know, some people have, because really we have such a suburban nation, you know, I, I don't want to really quibble over over that. We could call it municipal. We could find other words. In San Francisco, it's the municipality. It's okay. I'm, I'm happy. Metropolitan. I'm happy with that. With those terms. Um, you know, uh, the, the the problem is that in Latin America, the concept of urban is politically defined, not demographically. That's a real difference with the United States, where urban is dem- demographically defined, but not it's politically defined. So that's what you know. That's what I think. I don't think that national citizenship is uh, has, has proved very agile at dealing with these. I mean, we're, we're really blocked. Yeah. Um, what's the value added for you putting this analysis in a Marxist framework? Um, it seems to me, in listening to you talk, there are two basic disadvantages. Do you think I put it in a Marxist framework? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, Marx stood out a lot more than Weber in the general presentation. But I haven't read anything, so I can't put it in that line. But <clears throat> it seems to me that typically when you do that, you reduce the importance of democratic institutions, the value of democratic institutions, for solving the problem poor people in cities, for example, because the Marxian framework said this is just the worldwide democracy and so forth. And the second thing that you do is limit way too much um, the, the possibilities, the flexibilities inherent in capitalism uh, by using the label neoliberal, uh, for example, and therefore telling everybody, okay, this is a kind of economic development that's going to benefit a small group of people at the top and nobody else at the bottom and so forth. Where in the real world, I think, of both democratic institutions and market economics is much more open and, and much more valuable for you, for the values that you suffer. Well, well, I mean, I, I'm very happy to, to, to be associated with the Marxist tradition. I, I think that's a great honor. And, and for many things, um, for many things. But, but I, I don't think that it's an accurate description of what I said um, that democracy is a bourgeois institution. I mean, what I was talking no, about. No, I know that. I, know I mean, that. I was. General framework and the phrase of Marx and so forth. So, so but I, you know, what I was suggesting was, in fact, against the Marxist, this kind of vulgar Marxism. That this was an example of how a vulgar Marxism, or whatever words you want to use, a, a, a kind of, um, of, of, a, of a Marxism that only saw, perhaps with very good historical reasoning, that democracy and law were bourgeois institutions and served certain class interests forever. That they got it, the Marxists in Latin America got it wrong and did not accord the kind of, precisely the kind of residentially based re- urban social movements that I'm focusing on, and that Lefebvre focused on, and that's why Lefebvre, who was a Communist Party member, important Marxist, was trashed by 
by the left because he focused on, in this case, reproduction and residentially-based movements. So what I was saying is that the left missed it. Now, of course, I was also saying that a new left, oh, I didn't really say it here, but a new left emerged out of it. Uh, uh, the PT in an earlier version, uh, Lula is a product of precisely the movements that I'm talking about. So what I was arguing was that this kind of left, that in effect, Marxism, that you're just lampooning or describing, missed it. And they were blinded by the power of democracy to transform, the power of democracy to become non-bourgeois, the power of citizenship, these citizenship movements, to you know, attack the liberal foundations, that is to emphasize socioeconomic rights, which we don't have in this country, mostly. Right? In other words, the introduction of socioeconomic rights based on the absolute worth of a citizen, regardless of their market worth, is, is the most attractive, perhaps, aspect of citizenship for most of these people, um, to the unfortunate neglect of civil rights, etc. But, you know, complicated story. But the other point about the market, I also emphasized, I think, that the left missed that too. That these were people who became consumers and taxpayers, and that the market was important um, for... And, and, and so, w- w- when moving south, the right to the city really changed. I mean, Le- Lefebvre imagined that the working classes, in exercising the right to the city, would not only participate in, a, in, the, in the city and appropriate the city, but would transform property from, you know, its exchange value in the Marxist terminology to a use value. And um, basically, th- that both did and did not happen. It did not happen in that, in, that, in that the residents who were successful in regularizing their holdings were really happy to have their market value recognized and increase, happy to sell if, if, if an opportunity arose. Um, um, so they, they, these movements for property regularization and the like are within the capitalist market, not outside, not outside. Secondly, however... This transformation in the conceptualization of property is a fundamental transformation of liberalism's a, a, a foundation, a cornerstone of liberalism. This idea of the social function of property. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a complex development, but the market is not excluded in any way from it. And I was arguing that the left had missed. I do think almost all of this. Not Lefebvre, but then Lefebvre was excoriated for it. Well, and the suburban and middle classes, of course, used... Does anybody know about the City Beautiful movement in in American history? The City Beautiful movement was such a thing, um, used to... I mean, so so I'm sorry, so what you're saying, so you're saying the American middle class, suburban middle classes have... No, I was just wondering how, like, the middle class was using urban citizenship to... In India. Yeah. Well, just one thing about the United States, you know, you, um, you could make an argument... One could make an argument, I think, that the American, predominantly, overwhelmingly white suburban middle classes used the, an argument, maybe, you know, certainly not quite in these terms, but you, I think you could say, you could analyze it 
a right to the city argument to, to justify the use of highways to segregate particularly African-American communities and ghettos in, in inner cities you know, that, that took place in the 50s and 60s, even to the 70s, you know, this use of highways to segregate populations of poor people, giving access to the suburban whites to downtown and to centers of finance. I think that actually this idea... You're a model city for that. Hey, which American city is not, frankly? I mean, this was, this is, was the, the, the law of the land. I mean, even, you know, there's some cities where, that are so circumscribed geographically, like Manhattan and San Francisco, that it's a little harder to do that, right? But that's sort of an accident of geography, it seems to me. Um, right? So, you, you know, one could say that the U.S. provides an interesting example so the right to the city and surgeon citizens can be of all kinds. It's not necessarily good or just egalitarian. So what's happened in India is that Delhi is a good example. Um, because I have some couple of students who are working there. I may know this, this information. Um, the middle classes have used the right to the city argument quite explicitly, a right to the city <laughs> argument, to convince a changing judiciary that they have a right to the city and that they... Um, and that the courts need to expel squatters from the these huge squatter communities from the, ri- the, the river's edge, and, and you know the, the land needs to be developed, and then there's going to be not the Olympics, but what's the other? Ga- there's a set of games that's going to happen. Goodwill, hmm? the goodwill games. It's a set of games. It's going Commonwealth. Commonwealth games, maybe pan. You know, I don't. Some set of games. Um, and, you know that, that that's part of that. You know, have to make the city right, and the, the judiciary, which was always uh, since the, you know not the 1950 independence, was it 49? The independence w- often thought of itself as this past this pastoral function of caring for the welfare of the poor, has recently changed I- its approach in recognizing these claims of rights to the city. So it's also about the informal economy and street hawkers and all of that is. Uh, so the right to the city argument can be used by all sides. That's what I meant. Except for the initial transformation in South Africa. Except for, for 94, but the, the, the subsequent. The subsequent movements that are now objecting to state economic policy and environmental policy. And I'll other. So they don't use the electoral system. No. And you said that Lula in Brazil was sort of an outgrowth of these. Absolutely. So, so what happened? Well, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I confess I, I don't know the South African post very well, so that's really very interesting to hear. I mean, I've what I know. One thing I, I know a little bit about are, the rec, are these. Um, they're not called reconciliation courts. What are those new? The new this new system of of really sort of small claim courts that 
have, but they're, they're not in the in the case of a court. Um, in the in the in, in the local in the neighborhoods, there are these new arbitration uh, systems for settling disputes. I thought that was a very interesting participatory mechanism in South Africa. I can't remember the title at the moment of these things. Um, in the case of Brazil, um, okay. So, I mean, clearly my analysis is not of the traditional political science analysis that focuses on electoral. And in, in large measure, I thought that, because that, that, that the electoral, the, the, the overemphasis on, on sort of minimalist definitions of democracy, the minimalist definitions of democracy and the focus of democracy on electoral politics was missing the really important developments and missing the importance of violence and missing the importance of, of many things. But the way I think that electoral politics um, occurred was that um, this electoral transformation occurred in Brazil was that the PT, in, in particular the PT, um, had... Um, neighborhood-based nucleuses, is that what we call them? Outposts in storefronts in so many of these neighborhoods. And so many of the people in the party were precisely the people I'm talking about. Although at the neighborhood meetings, in the neighborhood association meetings that I participate in, the, the, um, the, the, the meetings were, 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 were very careful not to advocate party politics. So party politics was tended to be outside, even though the entire elected board was PT. They were very rigorous in separating the two. And that was a matter of principle, uh, to contest accusations that these were you know, party, uh, what's the word, party front organizations. And that was very deliberate processes. But the PT, especially the PT, was very plugged into the neighborhood-based associations. Now, they took over factories or they, they, they started you know, shop floor movements in the, in the 1980s, but they, they really wouldn't have been successful if they didn't have a residential basis. I'm absolutely convinced that the main transformations of in this concept of citizenship did not occur in the shop floor or even the ballot box. You have to remember the transition was... 1985, and the first election for president was 88, although you had local elections earlier. The first democratic elected governor was 82 in Sao Paulo, for example. So um, finally, you know, w you can ask, well, what about the idea of, of law, changes in law, equality, the very concept of rights? You know, I think that other parties like uh, the the, the PSDB and the PMDB, but, but before the PSDB, the PMDB, they were allied with the PT against dictatorship and the, the notion of human rights and of rights as, as, as legitimate, important, was very, very classic liberal concepts of liberty and equality were important in contesting military dictatorship and, and helping save prisoners, political prisoners' lives. The problem became in the trans after the military dictatorship the left tended to focus still on prisoners. And the right was very successful in pillorying human rights advocates as protectors of bandits, as the phrase was. Um, that, 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 that's been a problem. Anyway, I'm not sure that answers your question, but yeah.
The movement is saying tattoo. Yeah. Sure. Well, the, yes. So the movement of Saint Tetu uh, and the movement of um, the MST, the movement of Saint Terra, which I'm sure many of you know, which is the rural component. Um, well, so let's talk about the movement of Saint Tetu that, that you talked about. Um, you know, in the context of cities in which lots of people are deemed squatters, they didn't stand out as a as a leading movement. Um, so a lot of the people, who, those who even have claims to have purchased, let's say, put a down payment, because there's no institution of escrow. There's no institution of title insurance, um, which all of which facilitates fraud. You know, pe- People buy with a promissory contract and a down payment and then 10 years of, payment, of monthly payments. Um, so all of these people, even the, the majority of Brazilians, poor Brazilians, are not squatters. And, and people use the term a little loosely. They are people who have some claim to own the land but have been swindled. But they are nevertheless often called squatters by other swindlers who want to get them evicted. So the term squatter is often very loosely and generally used. So, you know, and so I haven't followed the Movimento Sinteto per se um, to, to be able to really answer your question. And maybe you have and you can tell us. Well, I mean, so let me tell you two things, just two things. Um, when Lula was running, uh, Lula has, you know, ran four times, right? Four. And then um, before getting elected. So every time he, he ran, it was always said, well, you know, if Lula gets elected, there'll be urban squatters everywhere. They will invade your building. They'll be sleeping in your hallway. That was one thing. Of course, none of that, really, none, none of that happened. But the second thing that did happen is that as part of the urban social movement's contribution to the Constitution and the changes in the legislation regarding the definition of property and of adverse possession, you know what I mean? In English, we call it adverse possession. In Portuguese, it's called usucapion, which means that possession can be converted to property with use over time. Generally, it's 30 or 40 years, but in the, as a result of the urban social movements in this insurgent citizen we're talking about, the Constitution created something called urban usucapion, which was five years for a particular kind of urban lot. In addition, um, well, that and a number of other things required enabling legislation to make effective. It took 13 years to produce that legislation. Part of that that they finally did in 2002 with a fantastic set of laws called the Estatuto da Cidade, the city statute, which required that all cities, all settlements with more than 20,000 people enact master plans embodying these constitutional principles. Really a very dramatic transformation. And one of those, a whole section of those, involves (coughs) the question of abandoned buildings, which gets at the heart of your question, which is a very good one, I mean a very important political issue. So what you have in, in, in all these cities um, um, 
particularly in times when there's economic depression and low rents, is that landlords simply abandon the buildings. They don't rent them. They let them, and they take tax write-offs if they can, and this kind of thing. So the new laws established um, severe penalties for lack of use. So one year, okay, two years, third year, the fines are prohibited. Fourth, fifth year, you, you'll lose the place. Basically, it's about an, I think, I don't know, five to seven year spread. And the idea there, it's, it's not, it encourages urban squatting per se, but it does deal with um, the housing stock that is abandoned and, and the target of squatting. And so the state can appropriate it, expropriate it, and convert it into social housing, which, and make it available to the people who need housing. And, and, and the, so far, it hasn't been a giveaway. And my experience is that people don't want to give away. People want to work and, and, and pay something. It has to be fair. So I would say then, it's a long process, but that I think addresses that, is the heart of it, or, of what you suggest. I think we'll have to transform actually in our session with him over time. So hopefully everyone can join us. You're invited to our reception. Thank you for these questions. They were great. Thank Very you so interesting. Much.